Section 14 of The Black Prophet by William Carleton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 14. Roddy, though cowardly and treacherous, was extremely cunning, and upon turning the matter over in his mind, he began to dread, or rather to feel, that Hanlon had so far overreached him. Still it might be possible, he thought, that the prophet had betrayed him, and he resolved to put a query to his companion that would test his veracity, after which he would leave himself at liberty to play a double game, if matters should so fall out as to render it necessary. "'Did you mean that you told everything?' he asked. "'Tell you the night that was appointed for this business?' Hanlon felt this was a puzzler, and that he might possibly commit himself by replying in the affirmative, No, he replied, he didn't tell me that. Ha-ha, thought his companion, I see whereabouts you are. He disclosed, however, the whole plot, with the single exception of the night appointed for the robbery, which, in point of date, he placed in his narrative exactly a week after the real time. Now, he said to himself, so far I am on the safe side. Still, if he has humbugged me, I've paid him in his own coin. Maybe the whole hall, as he calls it, may be secured before they begin to prepare for it. Hanlon, however, had other designs. After musing a little, they sauntered along the garden walks, during which he proposed a plan of their own for the robbery of Henderson and so admirably was it concocted and so tempting to the villainous cupidity of duncan that he expressed himself delighted from the commencement of its fancied execution until their ultimate settlement in america it was a treacherous thing i grant to betray you roddy said hanlon and if i was in your place i'd give him tit for tat and by the way talkin of the prophet not that i say it was he betrayed you, for indeed now it wasn't. Bad cess to me if it was. I think you once said you knew more about him than I thought. Aha! again thought Roddy. I think I see what you're after at last, but no matter. I'll keep my eye on you. Hut! I did I, he replied, but I forget now what's this it was. However, I'll try if I can remember it. If I do, I'll tell you. You and he will hang that murderin' villain, Dalton. I'm afeard of that, replied the other, and for my part I'd as soon be out of the thing altogether, however it can't be helped now. Isn't it strange, Roddy, how murder comes out at last? observed Hanlon. Now there's that old man, and see, after twenty years or more, how it comes against him. However, it's not a very pleasant subject, so let it drop. Here's Master Richard coming through the private gate, he added, but if you slip down to my aunt's to-night, we'll have a glass of something that'll do us no harm at any rate, and we can talk more about the other business. Very well, replied Roddy, I'll be down, so good-bye, and whisper Charlie, he added, putting on a broad grin, don't be too sure that I told you a single word of truth about the rob- <coughs> Aha! Take care of yourself. Good people is scarce, you know. Ha, ha, ha. He then left Hanlon in a state of considerable doubt as to the discovery he had made touching the apprehended burglary, and his uncertainty was the greater, inasmuch as he had frequently heard the highest possible encomiums lavished upon Duncan's extraordinary powers of invention and humbug. Young Henderson, on hearing these circumstances, did not seriously question their truth, neither did they in the slightest degree shake his confidence in the intentions of the prophet with respect to Mave Sullivan. Indeed, he argued very reasonably and correctly that the man who was capable of the one act would have little hesitation to commit the other. This train of reflection, however, he kept to himself, for it was necessary to state here that Hanlon was not at all in the secret of the plot against Mave. Henderson had, 
on an earlier occasion sounded him upon it but perceived at once that his scruples could not be overcome and that of course it would be dangerous to repose confidence in him the next evening was that immediately preceding the assizes and it was known that dalton's trial was either the second or third on the list and must consequently come on on the following day the peddler and hanlon sat in a depressed and melancholy mood at the fire an old crone belonging to the village who had been engaged to take care of the house during the absence of hanlon's aunt sat on the other side occasionally putting an empty dudeen into her mouth drawing it hopelessly and immediately knocking the bowl out of it in a fretful manner against the nail of her left thumb what's the matter ailey asked the peddler are you out of tobacco truth is it's time for you to ax i am i since i ate my dinner saw a puff i had here then he replied suiting the action to the word and throwing a few halfpence into her lap go to peggy finnegan's and buy yourself a couple of ounces and smoke rings round you and listen to me go down before you come back to bammy kirane's and see whether he has my shoes done or not and tell him from me that if they're not ready for me to-morrow morning i'll get him excommunicated when the crone had gone out the peddler proceeded don't be cast down yet i tell you there's still time enough and they may be here still be here still why good god isn't the trial to come on to-morrow they say so itself you may take my word for it that even if he's found guilty they won't hang him or any man of his years don't be too sure of that replied hanlon but indeed what could i expect after depending upon a foolish dream never mind i'm still of the opinion that everything may come about yet the prophet's wife was with father hanratty tellin him something and he is to call here early in the morning he'd bid me tell you so when did you see him to-day at the crossroads as he was goin to a sick call but where's the use of that when they're not here my own opinion is that she's either sick or if god hasn't said it may be dead how can we tell if ever she has seen or found the man you sent her for sure if she didn't all's lost truth i allow replied the peddler that things is in a distressin' state with us however while there's life there's hope as the doctor says there must be something extraordinary wrong to keep them away so long i grant or herself at any rate still i say again trust in god you have secured duncan you say but can you depend on the ruffian if it was on his honesty i could not one second but i do upon his villainy and love of money i have promised him enough and it all depends on whether he'll believe me or not well well observed the other i wish things had a brighter look up if we fail i won't know what to say we must only try and do the best we can ourselves have you seen the agent since you gave him the petition asked hanlon i did but he had no discourse with the hendersons and he bid me call on him again i dunna what does he intend to do hut nothin what did he do i'll go bail he'll never trouble his head about it more at any rate i told him a thing very likely he won't replied hanlon but what i'm thinking of now is the poor daltons may god in his mercy pity and support them this night the peddler clasped his hands tightly as he looked up and said amen ay said he it's now charley when i think of them that i get frightened about our disappointment and the way that everything has failed with us god pity them i say too the situation of this much tried family was indeed on the night in question pitiable in the extreme it is true they had now recovered or nearly so the full enjoyment of their health and were owing as we have already said to the bounty of some unknown friend in circumstances of considerable comfort 
Dalton's confession of the murder had taken away from them every principle on which they could rely, with one only exception. Until the moment of that confession, they had never absolutely been in possession of the secret cause of his remorse, although it must be admitted that on some occasions the strength of his language and the melancholy depth of his sorrow filled them with something like suspicion still such they knew to be the natural affection and tenderness of his heart his benevolence and generosity in spite of his occasional bursts of passion that they could not reconcile to themselves the notion that he had ever murdered a fellow-creature every one knows how slow the heart of wife or child is to entertain such a terrible suspicion about a husband or a parent and that the discovery of their guilt comes upon the spirit with a weight of distress and agony that is great in proportion to the confidence felt in them the affectionate family in question had just concluded their simple act of evening worship and were seated around a dull fire looking forward in deep dejection to the awful event of the following day the silence that prevailed was only broken by an occasional sob from the girls or a deep sigh from young con who with his mother had not long been returned from ballynafail where they had gone to make preparations for the old man's defence his chair stood by the fire in its usual place and as they looked upon it from time to time they could not prevent their grief from bursting out afresh the mother on this occasion found the usual grounds for comfort taken away from both herself and them we mean the husband's innocence she consequently had but one principle to rely on that of single dependence upon god and obedience to his sovereign will however bitter the task might be and so she told them it's a great trial to us children she observed and it's only natural we should feel it i do not bid you to stop crying my poor girls because it would be very strange if you didn't cry still let us not forget that it's our duty to bow down humbly before whatever misfortune and this is indeed a woeful one that it pleases god in his wisdom or maybe in his mercy to lay in our way that's all we can do now god help us and a hard trial it is for when we think of what he was to us of his kindness his affection her own voice became infirm and instead of proceeding she paused a moment and then giving one long convulsive sob that rushed up from her very heart she wept out long and bitterly the grief now became a wail and were it not for the presence of Con, who, however, could scarcely maintain a firm voice himself, the sorrow-worn mother and her unhappy daughters would have scarcely known when to cease. Mother dear, he exclaimed, what use is in this? You began with giving us a good advice, and you ended with setting us a bad example. Oh, mother darling, forgive me the word, never, never, since we remember anything did you ever set us a bad example con dear i bore up as long as i could she replied wiping her eye but you know after all nature's nature and will have its way you know too that this is the first tear i shed since he left us i know replied her son laying her careworn cheek over upon his bosom that you are the best mother that ever breathed and that i would lay down my life to save your heart from being crushed as it is and as it has been she felt a few warm tears fall upon her face as he spoke and the only reply she made was to press him affectionately to her heart god's merciful if we're obedient she added in a few moments don't you remember that when abraham was commanded to kill his only son he was ready to obey god and do it and don't you remember that it wasn't until his very hand was raised with a knife in it that god interfered wished she continued i hear a step who is it oh poor tom the poor young man entered as she spoke 
and after looking about him for some time placed himself in the armchair tom darlin said his sister peggy don't sit in that that's our poor father's chair and until he sits in it again none of us ever will nobody has such a right to sit in it as i have he replied i'm a murderer his words his wild figure and the manner in which he uttered them filled them with alarm and horror tom dear said his brother approaching him why do you speak that way you're not a murderer i am he replied but i haven't done with the sullivans yet for what they're going to do ha 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 oh no it's all planned and they'll suffer never doubt it tom said mary who began to fear that he might in some wild paroxysm have taken the life of the unfortunate miser or of someone else if you murdered anyone who was it who was it he replied if you go up to Corrabeg churchyard you'll find her there the child's widow but i didn't murder the child did i on finding that he alluded only to the unfortunate peggy murtaugh they recovered from the shock into which his words had thrown them tom however appeared exceedingly exhausted and feeble as was evident from his inability to keep himself awake his head gradually sank upon his breast and in a few minutes he fell into a slumber i'll put him to bed said con help me to raise him they lifted him up and a melancholy sight it was to see that face which had once been such a noble specimen of manly beauty now shrunk away into an expression of gaunt and haggard wildness that was painful to contemplate his sisters could not restrain their tears on looking at the wreck that was before them and his mother with a voice of deep anguish exclaimed my brave my beautiful boy what oh what has become of you oh tom tom she added maybe it's well for you that you don't know the breakin' hearts that's about you this night or the bitter fate that's over him that loved you so well as they turned him about to take off his cravat he suddenly raised his head and looking about him asked where's my father gone i see you all about me but him where's my father ere the words were pronounced however he was once more asleep and free for a time from the wild and moody malady that oppressed him such was the night and such were the circumstances and feelings that ushered in the fearful day of condy dalton's trial chapter twenty nine a picture of the present sarah breaks a word the grey of a cold frosty morning had begun to dawn and the angry red of the eastern sky gradually to change into that dim but darkening aspect which marks a coming tempest of snow when the parish priest the reverend father hanrity accompanied by nelly mcgowan passed along the ballyfenale road on their way to the grange for the purpose of having a communication with charlie hanlon it would indeed be impossible to describe a morning more strongly marked than the one in question by that cold and shivering impression of utter misery which is calculated to leave on any mind especially when associated with the sufferings of our people the breeze was keen and so cutting that one felt as if that part of the person exposed to it had undergone the process of excoriation and when a stronger blast than usual swept over the naked and desolate-looking fields its influence actually benumbed the joints and penetrated the whole system with a sensation that made one imagine the very marrow within the bones was frozen they had not proceeded far beyond the miserable shed where sarah in the rapid prostration of typhus had been forced to take shelter when in passing a wretched cabin by the roadside which from its open door and ruinous windows had all the appearance of being uninhabited they heard the moans of some unhappy individual within accompanied as it were 
with something like the low, feeble wail of an infant. Ah, said the worthy priest, this, I fear, is another of those awful cases of desertion and death that are too common in this terrible and scourging visitation. We must not pass here without seeing what is the matter, and rendering such assistance as we can. With the help of God, my foot won't cross the threshold, replied Nelly. I know it's the sickness. God keep it from us, and I won't put myself in the way of it. Don't profane the name of the Almighty, you wretched woman, replied the priest, alighting from his horse. It is always his will and wish that in such trials as these you should do whatever you can for your suffering fellow-creatures. But if I should catch it, the other replied, what'd become of me? Mightn't I be as bad as they are in there, and maybe in the same place, too? And God knows I'm not fit to die. Stay where you are, said the priest, until I enter the house, and if your assistance should be necessary, I shall command you to come in. Well, if you order me, replied the superstitious creature, that changes the case. I'll be then under obedience to my clergy. If you had better observed the precepts of your religion, and the injunctions of your clergy, wretched woman, you would not be the vile creature you are to-day, he replied, as he hooked his horse's bridle upon a staple in the door-post, and entered the cabin. O merciful Father, support me, he exclaimed. What a sight is here! Come in at once, he added, addressing himself to Nelly, and if you have a woman's heart within you, aid me in trying what can be done. Awed by his words, but with timidity and reluctance, she approached the scene of appalling misery which there lay before them. But how shall we describe it? The cabin in which they stood had been evidently for some time deserted, a proof that its former humble inmates had been all swept off by typhus, for in these peculiar and not uncommon cases no other family would occupy the house thus left desolate, so that the cause of its desertion was easily understood. The floor was strewn in some places with little stopples of rotten thatch, evidently blown in by the wind of the previous night. The cheerless fireplace was covered with clots of soot, and the floor was all spattered over with the black shining moisture called soot drops, which want of heat and habitation caused to fall from the roof. The cold, strong blast, too, from time to time rushed in, with wild moans of desolation that rose and fell in almost supernatural tones and swept the dead ashes and soot from the fireplace and the rotten thatch from the floor in little eddies that spun about until they got out into some nook or corner with the fiercer strength of the blast could not reach them. Stretched out in this wretched and abandoned hut lay before the good priest and his companion a group of misery consisting of both the dying and the dead, to wit a mother and her three children. Over in the corner on the right-hand side of the fireplace the unhappy and perishing creature lay, divided or rather torn asunder, as it were, by the rival claims of affection. Lying close to her cold and shivering breast, was an infant of about six months old, striving feebly from time to time to draw from that natural source of affection the sustenance which had been dried up by chilling misery and want. Beside her, on the left, lay a boy, a pale, emaciated boy, about eight years old, silent and motionless, with the exception that, ever and anon, he turned round his heavy blue eyes, as if to ask some comfort or aid, or even some notice from his unfortunate mother, who, as if conscious of these affectionate supplications, pressed his wan cheek tenderly with her fingers, to intimate to him that as far as she could, she responded to and 
acknowledged these last entreaties of the heart, whilst again she felt her affection called upon by the apparently dying struggles of the infant that was in reality fast perishing at the now exhausted fountain of its life. Between these two claimants was the breaking heart of the woeful mother divided, but the alternations of her love seemed now almost wrought up to the last terrible agonies of mere animal instinct, when the sufferings are strong in proportion to that debility of reason which supervenes in such deaths as arise from famine, or under those feelings of indescribable torture which tore her affection, as it were, to pieces, and paralyzed her higher powers of moral suffering. Beyond the infant again, and next the wall lay a girl, it might be of about eleven, stretched as if in sleep, and apparently in a state of composure, that struck one forcibly when contrasted from its utter stillness, with the yet living agonies by which she was surrounded. It was evident, from the decency with which the girl's thin, scanty covering was arranged, and the emaciated arms placed by her side, that the poor parent had endeavoured as well as she could to lay her out, and, O oh, great God, what a task for a mother, and under what circumstances must it have been performed? There, however, did the corpse of this fair and unhappy child lie. Her light and silken locks, blown upon her still and death-like features by the ruffian blast, and the complacency which had evidently characterized her countenance when in life now stamped by death, with a sharp and wan expression of misery and the grave. Thus surrounded lay the dying mother, and it was not until the priest had taken in at more than one view the whole terrors of this awful scene that he had time to let his eyes rest upon her countenance and person when he did however the history though a fearful one was in her case as indeed in too many legible at a glance and may be comprised in one word starvation father hanratty was a firm-minded man with a somewhat rough manner, but a heart natural and warm. After looking upon her face for a few moments, he clasped his hands closely together, and, turning up his eyes to heaven, he exclaimed, Great God, guide and support me in this trying scene. And indeed it is not to be wondered at that he uttered such an exclamation. There lay in the woman's eyes, between her knit and painful eyebrows over her shrunk upper forehead upon her sharp cheekbones and along the ridge of her thin wasted nose there lay upon her skeleton arms pointed elbows and long jointed fingers a frightful expression at once uniform and varied that spoke of gaunt and yellow famine in all its most hideous horrors her eyeballs protruded even to sharpness, and as she glared about her with a half-conscious and half-instinctive look, there seemed a fierce demand in her eye that would have been painful, were it not that it was occasionally tamed down into something mournful and imploring. By a recollection of the helpless beings that were about her, stripped as she then was of all that civilized society presents to human being on the bed of death without friends aid of any kind comfort sympathy or the consolations of religion she might be truly said to have sunk to the mere condition of animal life whose uncontrollable impulses had thus left their startling and savage impress upon her countenance unless, as we have said, when the faint dawn of consciousness threw a softer and more human light into her wild features, in the name and in the spirit of God's mercy asked the priest, If you have the use of your tongue or voice, 
tell me what the matter is with you or your children is it sickness or starvation the sound of a human voice appeared to arrest her attention and rouse her a little she paused as it were from her sufferings and looked first at the priest and then at his companion but she spoke not he then repeated the question and after a little delay he saw that her lips moved she is striving to speak said he but cannot i will stoop to her he repeated the question a third time and stooping so as to bring his ear near her mouth he could catch expressed very feebly and indistinctly the word hunger she then made an effort and bent down her mouth to the infant which now lay still at her breast she felt for its little heart she felt its little lips but they were now chill and motionless its little hands ceased to gather any longer around her breast it was cold it was breathless it was dead her countenance now underwent a singular and touching change a kind of solemn joy a sorrowful serenity was diffused over it she seemed to remember their position and was in the act after having raised her eyes to heaven of putting round her hand to feel for the boy who lay on the other side when she was seized with a short and rather feeble spasm a laying down her head in its original position between her children she was at last freed from life and all the sufferings which its gloomy lot had inflicted upon her and those whom she loved the priest seeing that she was dead offered up a short but earnest prayer for the repose of her soul after which he turned his attention to the boy the question now is he observed to his companion can we save this poor but interesting child i hardly think it possible she replied doesn't your reverence see that death's workin' at him and an easy job he'll have of the poor thing now hunger and cold have here done awful work said father hanratty as they have and will in many other conditions similar to this i shall mount my horse and if you lift the poor child up i will wrap him as well as i can in my great coat which by the way he stripped off him as he spoke he then folded it around the boy and putting him into nelly's arms was about to leave the cabin when the child looking round him for a moment then upon his mother made a faint struggle to get back what is it ashore asked the woman what is it you want leave me with my mother he said let me go to her my poor father's dead and left us oh let me stay with her the poor boy's voice was so low and feeble that it was with difficulty she heard the words which she repeated to the priest dear child said the latter we are bringing you to where you will get food and drink and a warm bed to go to and you will get better i hope and as he took the helpless and innocent sufferer into his arms after having fixed himself in the saddle the tears of strong compassion ran down his cheeks he is as light as a feather poor thing exclaimed the kind-hearted man but i trust in heaven we may save him yet and they immediately hurried onward to the next house which happened to be that of our friend jerry sullivan to the care of whose humane and affectionate family they consigned him we cannot dwell here upon that which every reader can anticipate it is enough to say that the boy with care recovered and that his unfortunate mother with her two children received a humble grave in the nearest churchyard beyond the reach of the storms and miseries of life forever on reaching the grange or rather the house now occupied by widow hanlon the priest having sent for charley into whose confidence he had for some time been admitted had a private conference of considerable length with him and the peddler after which nelly was called in as it would seem to make some disclosure connected with the subject they were discussing a deep gloom however rested upon both hanlon and 
the pedlar, and it was sufficiently evident that whatever the import of Nelly McGowan's communication may have been, it was not of so cheering a nature as to compensate for the absence of widow Hanlon and the party for which she had been sent. Father Hanratty having left them, they took an early breakfast and proceeded to Ballinafail, which we choose to designate as the assize town, in order to watch with disappointed and heavy hearts the trial of Condy Dalton, in whose fate they felt a deeper interest than the reader might suppose. All the parties attended, the prophet among the rest, and it might have been observed that his countenance was marked by an expression of peculiar determination. His brow was, if possible, darker than usual. His eye was quicker and more circumspect, but his complexion, notwithstanding this, was not merely pale, but absolutely white as ashes. The morning came, however, and the assizes were open with the usual formalities. The judge's charge to the grand jury, in consequence of the famine outrages which had taken place to such an extent, was unusually long, nor was the king against Dalton for the murder of Sullivan left without due advice and comment. In this way a considerable portion of the day passed. At length a trial for horse-stealing came on, but closed too late to allow them to think of commencing any other case during the day, and, as a natural consequence, that of Condy Dalton was postponed until the next morning. It is an impressive thing, and fills the mind with a reverent sense of the wisdom manifested by an overruling providence to reflect upon the wondrous manner in which the influence of slight events is made to frustrate the subtlest designs of human ingenuity and vindicate the justice of the almighty in the eyes of his creatures sometimes for the reward of the just and as often for the punishment of the guilty had the trial of dalton for instance gone on as had been anticipated during the first day it is impossible to say how many of the characters in our humble drama might have grievously suffered or escaped in consequence at all events it is not likely that the following dialogue would have taken place or been made instrumental in working out purposes and defeating plans with which the reader if he is not already will very soon be made acquainted donald dew had returned from the assizes and was sitting as usual poring over the fire when he asked the old woman who nursed sarah if there had been any persons inquiring for him since nightfall three or four she replied but i said you hadn't come home yet and devil a one of them but was all on the same tune and bid me to tell you that it was a safe night well i hope it is biddy he replied but not so safe he added to himself as i could wish it to be how is sarah she is better replied the woman and was up to-day for an hour or two but still she's poorly and i think her brain isn't right yet very likely it isn't said the prophet but biddy when were you at shanko not this week past well then if you like to slip over for an hour or so now you may and i'll take care of sarah till you come back only don't be longer long life to you donnel truth and i want to go if it was only to set the little matters right for them poor orphans my grandchildren well then go he replied but don't be more than an hour away mind i'll take care of sarah for you till you come back at this moment a tap came to the door and donnel on hearing it went out and in a minute or two returned again saying hurry biddy make haste if you wish to go at all but remember not to be more than an hour away the old creature accordingly threw her cloak about her and made the best of her way to see her grandchildren both of whose parents had been swept away by the first deadly ravages of the typhus fever 
She had not been long gone when another tap was given, and Donnell, on opening the door, said, "'You may come in now. She's off to Shanko. I didn't think it safe that she should see us together on this night at all events. Sit down. This girl's illness has nearly spoiled all. However, we must only do the best we can. Thank God the night's dark. That's one comfort.' If we could a had Dalton found guilty, replied Body, all would be well over this night, and we might be on our way out of this to America. But what'd you do with Sarah if we had? Sure she wouldn't be able to travel, nor she won't, I doubt as it is. Sarah, replied the prophet, who suspected the object of the question, is well fit to take care of herself. We must only go without her if she's not able to come the day after to-morrow. Where are the boys for the Grange? Under shelter of the grey stone, waiting to start. Well, then, as it is, said Donnell, they know their business at any rate. The Grange folk don't expect them this week to come, you think? Roddy looked at the prophet very keenly, as he thought of the conversation that took place between himself and Charlie Hanlon, and which, upon an explanation with Donnell, he had detailed. The fellow, however, as we said, was both cowardly and suspicious, and took it into his head that his friend might feel disposed to play him a trick by sending him to conduct the burglary, of which Hanlon had spoken with such startling confidence, a piece of cowardice which indeed was completely gratuitous and unfounded on his part the truth being that it was the prophet's interest above all things to keep roddy out of danger both for that worthy individual's sake and his own roddy we say looked at him and of a certainty must be admitted that the physiognomy of our friend the seer during that whole day was one from which no very high opinion of his integrity or good faith could be drawn it's a very strange thing replied roddy in a tone of thought and reflection how charlie hanlon came to know of this matter at all he never heard a word of it replied donnell barrin from yourself from me replied roddy indignantly what do you mean by that why when you went to sound him said donnell you let too much out and charlie was too cute not to see what you were at all featherlog and nonsense replied roddy who by the way entertained a very high opinion of his own sagacity no mortal could suspect that there was a plot to rob the house from what i said but hold he added slapping his knee as if he had made a discovery much up a duel but i have it all what is it said the prophet calmly you told the matter to sarah and she by course told it to charlie hanlon that she tells everything to no such thing replied the other sarah knows nothing about the robbery that's to go on to-night at the grange but she did about the plan upon mave sullivan and promised to help us in it as i told you before well at any rate replied duncan i'll have nothing to do with this robbery devil a thing but i'll make a bargain wid you if you manage the grange business i'll lend a hand in mave sullivan's affair the prophet looked at him fastening his dark piercing eyes upon his face i see he proceeded you're suspicious or you're cowardly or maybe both but to make you feel that i'm neither the one nor the other and that you have no reason to be so either i say i'll take you at your word do you manage mave sullivan's business and i'll see what can be done with the other and listen to me now it's our business in case of a discovery of the robbery to have master dick's neck as far in the noose for mave's affair as ours may be for the other thing and for the same reason you needn't care how far you drive him he doesn't wish to have violence 
but do you take care that there will be violence and then maybe we may manage him if there's a discovery in the other affair donnel you're a great headpiece the devil's not so deep as you are but as the most of them all is strangers and they say there's two girls in sullivan's instead of one how will the strange boy know the right one if it goes to that said the prophet you'll know her by her clipped head the minute they seize upon the girl with the clipped head let them make sure of her poor foolish tom dalton who knows nothing about our scheme thinks the visit is merely to frighten the sullivans but when you get the girl let her be brought to the crossroads of tulnavert where master dick will have a chase waitin for her and wanst she's with him your care's over in the meantime while he's waitin there i and the others will see what can be done at the grange but tell me donald you don't intend surely to leave poor sarah behind us eh sarah returned the prophet ay because you said so a while agone i know i said so a while ago but regardin sarah roddy she's the only livin thing on this earth that i care about i have hardened my heart thank god against all the world but herself and although i have never much showed it to her and although i have neglected her and sometimes thought i hated her for her mother's sake well no matter she's the only thing i love or care about for all that oh no go without sarah come well come woe we must not because continued roddy when we're safe and out of the reach of danger i have a thing to say to you about sarah very well roddy said the prophet with a grim but bitter smile it'll be time enough then now go and manage these fellows and see you do things as they ought to be done she's fond of charlie hanlon to my own knowledge who is sarah and between you and me it's not a bernoge like him that's fit for her she's a hasty and an uncertain kind of girl a good deal wild or so and it isn't as i said the likes of that chap that'd answer her but a steady experienced sober honest man roddy well i'm not in the laughing humor now be off and see that you do yourself and us all credit when he was gone the prophet drew a long breath one however from its depths evidently indicative of anything but ease of mind he then rose and was preparing to go out when sarah who had only laid herself on the bed without undressing got up and approaching him said in a voice tremulous with weakness father i have heard every word you and roddy said well replied her father looking at her i supposed as much i made no secret of anything however keep to your bed your father i have changed my mind you have neither my heart nor wish in anything you're bent on this night changed your mind replied the prophet bitterly oh you're a real woman i suppose like your mother you'll drive some unfortunate man to hate the world and all that's in it yet father i care as little about the world as you do but still never will i lay myself out to do anything that's wrong you promised to assist us then in mave sullivan's business for all that he replied you can break your word too ah real woman again sooner than keep that promise father now i would willingly let the last drop of blood out of my heart my unhappy heart father you're proven yourself to be what i can't name listen to me you're on the brink of destruction stop in time and fly for there's a fate over you i dreamt since i lay down not more than a couple of hours ago that i saw the tobacco-box you were looking for in the hands of don't bother or vex me with your damned nonsense about dreams he replied in a loud and excited voice the curse of heaven on all dreams and every stuff of the kind go to bed he slapped the door violently after him as he spoke and left her 
to her own meditations. Chapter 30 Self-Sacrifice Villainy Time passes now as it did on the night recorded in the preceding chapter. About the hour of two o'clock on the same night, a chase was standing at the crossroads of Tullivert, in which a gentleman, a little but not much the worse of liquor, sat in a mood redolent of anything but patience. Many ejaculations did he utter, and some oaths, in consequence of the delay of certain parties whom he expected to meet there. At length the noise of many feet was heard, and in the course of a few minutes a body of men advanced in the darkness, one of whom approached the chase and asked, Is that Master Dick? Master Dick, sirrah, no, it's not. Then there must be some mistake, replied the fellow who was a stranger, and as it's a runaway match, by Gora, it would never do to give the girl to the wrong person. It was Master Dick that the prophet desired us to inquire for. There is a mistake, my friend. There is. My name, my good fellows, happens to be Master Richard, or rather Mr. Richard. In all other respects, everything is right. I expect a lady, and I am the gentleman, but not Master Dick, though. Richard is the correct reading. Then, sir, replied the fellow, here she is. And whilst speaking, a horseman bearing a female before him came forward, and in a few minutes she was transferred without any apparent resistance to the inside of the vehicle which awaited her. This vehicle we shall now follow. The night, as we said, was dark, but it was also cold and stormy. The driver, who had received his instructions, proceeded in the direction of the Grange, and we only, I say so generally, because so many crossroads branched off from that which they took, that it was impossible to say when or where Master or Mr. Richard may have intended to stop. In the meantime, that enterprising and gallant young gentleman commenced a dialogue somewhat as follows. My dear Miss Sullivan, I must be satisfied that these fellows have conducted this business with all due respect to your feelings. I hope they have not done anything to insult you. I am very weak, replied the lady. You needn't expect me to speak much, for I am not able. I only wish I was in heaven, or anywhere out of this world. You speak as if you had been agitated or frightened, but compose yourself. You are now under my protection at last, and you shall want for nothing that can contribute to your ease and comfort. Upon my honor, upon my sacred honor, I say, I would not have caused you even this annoyance, were it not that you yourself expressed a willingness, very natural indeed, considering our affection, to meet me here to-night. Who told you that I was willing to meet you? Who? Why, who but our mutual friend, the Black Prophet? And, by the way, he is to meet us at the Greystone by and by. He told you false, then, replied his companion feebly. Why, asked Henderson, are you not here with your own consent? I am. Oh, indeed I am. It's altogether my own act that brings me here, my own act. And I thank God that I had strength for it, admirable girl. That is just what I have been led to expect from you, and you shall not regret it. I have, as I said, everything provided that can make you happy. Happy? I can't bear this, sir. I'm deceiving you. I'm not what you think me. You are ill, I fear, my dear Miss Sullivan. The bustle and disturbance have agitated you too much, and you are ill. You are speaking truth. I am very ill, but I'll soon be better. I'll soon be better. She feared nothing from me, added she, in a low soliloquy. And could I let her outdo me in generosity and kindness? Is this fire? Is there fire in the coach? She asked in a loud voice. Or is it lightning? Oh, my head, my head, 
but it will soon be over. Compose yourself, I entreat of you, my dearest girl. What good heavens! How is this? You have not been ill for any time? Your hand, pardon me, you need not withdraw it so hastily, is quite burning and fleshless. What is wrong? Everything, sir, is wrong, unless that I am here, and that is as it ought to be. Ha! Good, my dearest girl, that consoles me again. Upon my honor, the old prophet shall not lose by this. On the contrary, I shall keep my word, and at the greystone shall he pocket ere half an hour the reward of his allegiance to his liege lord. I have for a long time had my eye on you, Miss Sullivan, and when the prophet assured me that you had discarded Dalton for my sake, I could scarcely credit him until you confirmed the delightful fact by transmitting me a tress of your beautiful hair. His companion made no reply to this, and the chase went on for some minutes without any further discourse. Henderson at length ventured to put over his hand towards the corner in which his companion sat, but no sooner came in contact with her person than he felt her shrinking, as it were, from his very touch. With his usual complacent confidence, however, in his own powers of attraction, and strongly impressed besides, with a belief in his knowledge of the sex, he at once imputed all this to caprice on the behalf of Mave, or rather to that assumption of extreme delicacy, which is often resorted to and overacted when the truthful and modest principle from which it should originate has ceased to exist. Well, my dear girl, he proceeded, I grant that all this is natural enough, quite so. I know the step you have taken shows great strength of character, for indeed it requires a very high degree of moral courage and virtue in you to set society and the whole world at perfect defiance for my sake. But, my dearest girl, don't be cast down. You are not alone in this heroic sacrifice, not at all, believe me. You are not the first who has made it for me. Neither, I trust, shall you be the last. This I say, of course, to encourage you, because I see that the step you have taken has affected you very much, as is natural it should. A low moan, apparently of great pain, was the only reply Henderson received to this eloquent effort at consolation. The carriage again rolled onward in silence, and nothing could be heard but the sweep of the storm without, for it blew violently, and deep breathings, or occasional moanings, from his companion within. They drove, it might be, for a quarter of an hour in this way, when Henderson felt his companion start, and the next moment her hand was placed upon his arm. Aha, my dearest, thought he, I knew, notwithstanding all your beautiful startings and fencings, that matters would come to this. There is nothing, after all, like leaving you to yourselves a little, and you are sure to come round. My dear Miss Sullivan, he added aloud, be composed. Say but what it is you wish, and if a man can accomplish it, it must be complied with or procured for you. Then, said she, if you are a human being, let me know when we come to the grey stone. Undoubtedly I shall. The grim old prophet promised to meet us there, and for a reason I have, I know he will keep his word. We shall be there in less than a quarter of an hour. But, my precious creature, now that you understand how we are placed with relation to each other, I think you might not and ought not object to allowing me to support you after the fatigue and agitation of the night. Ahem! Do repose your head upon my bosom like a pretty, trembling, agitated dear as you are. Hold away, exclaimed his companion. Don't dare to lay a hand upon me. If your life is worth anything, and it's not worth much, keep your distance. You'll find your mistake soon. I didn't put myself in your power 
without the means of defending myself and punishing you if you should deserve it beautiful caprice but my dearest girl i can understand it all it is well done and i know besides that little hysterics will be necessary in their proper place but for that you must wait till we get to our destination and then you will be most charmingly affected with a fit a delightful sweet soft sobbing fit which will render it necessary for me to soothe and console you to wipe your lovely eyes and then you know to kiss your delicious lips all this my darling girl will happen as a natural consequence and in due time everything will be well end of section fourteen